This is Seba, the Southern Fried Witch, and today we are interviewing the host, co-host of the Science Witch podcast. And you guys want to say hi? Hello, I'm Angel. I use they, them pronouns, and I am one of the co-hosts of the Science Witch podcast. And hello, everyone. My name is Enku. I use he, him pronouns, and I am the other co-host of the Science Witch podcast. And I'm excited as hell, y'all. So <laughs> here's the thing. Um, I was first interviewed on the Science Witch podcast. Yes. Mm-hmm. I believe it was episode, oh my goodness. I, yeah, I think it was 15. Yes. Yeah, 115. And it was so wonderful that I decided to come back to podcasting. So thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah, that. well, you also were on That Witch Life. Mm -hmm. And I loved that interview you did. It was like, I think it was such a powerful message out there because that which life definitely has a lot more (laughs) uh, reach, I think. And they've been doing it now for three years. I'm friends with all of them in in real life. And (laughs) they had you want to talk about being a witch in a place that's a little more hostile towards people being open about witchcraft. And I, I just... That was such a great episode. And so if anyone listening out there hasn't had a chance, maybe you can link that because I feel like you just, you have such a poetic way to explain very um, difficult concepts that really has resonance on an emotional level. And so I'm Mm. so glad that you've gotten to come back to podcasting because I I missed your voice, Seba. I really did. It really matters to me. And honestly, it is the support of other witches that has made the difference and I think as a Southern witch to have the support from other places, I think that was critical, you know, and just while we're in this Inku, you are in the rural South. That is correct. Yes, I am in the, in the rural Gulf coast, South Gulf Mm -hmm. coast, part of the South. Mm -hmm. And I am in the Pacific Northwest. Right. We're, we're a little coven of witches tonight. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there are a lot of questions I want to ask you guys, but I wanted to start with something that I've been really kind of grokking on lately. And that is as a science witch podcast, is there a negotiation even for us as witches who also care about science and see that as part of our path? Do you ever struggle with the impact that you are leaving on the world? I mean, I run a a certified naturally organic farm. And that means that it's way more police than an organic farm. Yeah. I have to care about the runoff. I have Mm -hmm. to care about, you know, my own usage of energy or water. And these things all have to kind of get in the mix when I'm making a plan. So (laughs) it's forced me, I think, and it's a good thing it did to think about, you know, did I just throw that bottle cap down? Did I, <laughs> you know, do I really need bleach to make that shirt whiter? You know, the smallest little things. And I don't know, do you guys struggle with that? Because we're living in a really kind of tough world for that. Constantly. 
I constantly struggled with it. I would have to say ecology environmentalism was sort of my gateway to witchcraft because I always just had this really emotional connection to the planet. And I've always been a planeteer. From when I was a, a really young child, I was always wanting to help pick up trash and plant trees and be in the forest. So for me, it's something that I think about a lot. I was president of our Sierra Club chapter as well. And I've in college. Yes, back at our alma mater. And I have a very distinct memory of an angry, a very angry <laughs> tailgater. Oh, yes. Picking, picking up your rubbish bin that had all of the cans in it and throwing it and yes. saying very loudly, I'm an American. I hate the environment. I think that's a direct <laughs> quote. Yeah. And my uh, spouse, who was so my boyfriend at the time, wanted to kick this dude's ass. And I was like, no, we're officially here at Sierra Club business. You can't pick a fight with this dude. But we were trying to collect aluminum cans to recycle at a tailgating event. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, a tailgate is just a mine of aluminum. That just a mine. Up. It's like, just yeah, ridiculous. And like here, you can actually make an income a small but sizable income off of recycling. And in Mississippi, they just throw it away and it would fill up in landfills. And so that was one of the main things is because when I was in the Sierra Club, aluminum is one of the most energetically like easiest things to recycle. And by not mining more aluminum, you're preventing this other huge polluting industry from continuing. And we, at this point, we have enough aluminum that we don't need to continue to, to manufacture more of it at this point. But no, I am always thinking about how to have a more, be in a more in alignment with environmentalism and try to reduce my impact. Now, of course, there's always that, you know, calculation of, do I really want to ride my bike when it's, you know, 27 degrees and, and, and raining <laughs> and dark and I have to be at work by five in the morning? Like I would, but I also have to be realistic about what my limitations are and what I can do as far as, um, but I volunteer a lot. I try to keep up on any kind of ecological and, you know, environmental news. And I also have big ideas that if I ever make a lot of money, I think would really help like things to do with fungi and microbiology and how to incorporate them into all sorts of other industries. But I also want let Inku to <laughs> have a chance to talk as well. What do you have, Inku? What are you thinking? Well, I was thinking about a lot of stuff, but maybe what Angel was saying, can we restate sort of the prompt or the question? Like, well, what were we going, what were like, we chatting about? Yeah, I think it was my fault. I'm Southern and I talk around hedgebushes, honey. And Oh, no, no, I am the same way. We'll, we'll go off in lots of different tangents, but I wasn't sure exactly which one to pick up on. Well, what do you see? Do you, no, not what do you see, but do you struggle with impact mm. of your own Oh. daily life as a witch knowing the science behind what we are doing oh so much mm -hmm. oh so so much and we, it's we've not an really easy goal <laughs> you know it, you know <laughs> I, really i'll is. say back when angel and i were in college i was like a big boycotter of walmart 
And I yes. still support the boycott of Walmart. And I Me too. Me too. find big box stores abhorrent in, yes. in every single way. But outside of an organized boycott that's like being called by a union or a social movement organization that's really active, just the act of not going to Walmart and so choosing what I have access to out here is, you know, the whole system is really, really fucked and really yeah. fucked up. And I think sometimes we can get into a purity politics or mm-hmm. May, mm-hmm. let me speak for myself. I'm sorry. I think that I have had a tendency to get into like a purity politics mm-hmm. around consumerism and trying to walk the line between not falling into that perfectionism and recognizing that I'm working within a system that is toxic mm-hmm. every which way it could be. And inherently like unsustainable and well, capitalism. It's capital. Right. It's capital. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is capitalism. Yeah. Makes it rough. When I was younger, I also used to be vegan. Mm-hmm. And right now, to be in alignment with my values, I would be much closer to that. But I quit being vegan in part because I realized, well or I guess I'll say I began being vegetarian for compassion reasons. And then I realized that they're the same industry. Like mm-hmm. the meat and the dairy industries are the same industry. It's mm-hmm. just like the front door and the back door to the same building. And so I became vegan and I tried to be a healthy vegan and I felt really ill. And yeah. like, I looked back and I was like emaciated, mm-hmm. even though I was trying really hard to be healthy. And so I started eating dairy again at that point, since the industry just melded together is like, well, how can I justify one and not the other? So it's a dance. I really want to get to the point of fishing and hunting and respectfully harvesting my own protein sources from Mm -hmm. my land. And I I see that as a possible vision that I want to manifest and I haven't done it yet. Well, Anko, I want to just say that I'm not throwing you under the bus on this or you, Angel. The idea has occurred to me over and over For instance, uh, several years ago before the pandemic, we had a little get together out here and someone brought red solo cups. And I was going to argue with y'all that that's the other thing that shows up at tailgates. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, yes. So that is that is the truth. (laughs) And you can't recycle those. Those No, no. You I mean, I have done and that's no, you can't. I've done my best to upcycle them. Now, that was years ago. Those same red solo cups have little holes in the bottom of them now, and I sterilize them every year so they can <laughs> host my no, so they can host my seedlings oh. from my yard. Oh, that's I love that. And I've got them taped together because <laughs> I just don't want to put them in the ground. So right. even right. even if we can just sort of upcycle a little bit or hold off on something I think it counts and that was you know so I'm not I feel where you're coming from here what do we do you know well I also have a lot of climate grief and just like environmental grief because I remember in 2002 when I was still an undergrad I was so passionate about you know Al Gore had just put out the inconvenient truth. And I was like, okay, we need to do something about climate change. And nobody cared. Like literally, I guess it's just the place I was. It was hard to find people that would actually be willing to do what it takes to help mitigate climate change. And where we're from, I mean, I love New Orleans. It is the city of my heart, but I know I feel it in my bones. 
New Orleans is going to be a climate casualty. It's going to be a casualty of, it already is. I mean, they've had to literally retire zip codes along the Louisiana coast because of sea level rise and also erosion and land, land mass loss. And New Orleans is below the river. It is actually negative sea level. And Louisiana has this really terrible legacy of corruption and Mm. money just being funneled into people's pockets or freezers, as it were, instead of actually being used to support infrastructure. And if we get another Katrina, it's going to just devastate the city Mm. all over again. And the city already lost about half its population after Katrina, it went from a city of like 1.2 million to I think it's 600,000 now. And that's even with the new, like the tech bros that have started moving in and trying to gentrify it. So it's a beautiful, unique, incredible city that has given this world so many beautiful things like, you know, New Orleans Mardi Gras, New Orleans voodoo, New Orleans food, New Orleans music. And the fact that it is so vulnerable with climate change, with the hurricanes and the, and the sea level rising, it just breaks my heart. And it's one of the reasons I chose to leave the South mm-hmm. was because right when I was deciding whether or not I was going to do my PhD in the south- Southeastern part of the United States, because I had gotten into two schools there, or if I wanted to move out West. That's when the Exxon, it was in 2010. So that the deep explosion, water horizon, the deep water horizon that exploded. Yeah. And so my PhD was probably going to be around the impacts of oil in the Gulf on plant life and mushrooms and mycology. And so it, I just was like, I can't, I don't want this. I want to, I want to see more of the country. And so that was when I actually chose to move away from New Orleans, but I have a lot of grief about that. And I also have a, you know, hope that I will be able in some way to find the resources to help the city continue and not just end up being completely inundated by the Gulf. Yeah. I mean, I think that I literally farm in Mm self-defense. I really do think that's what I'm doing it half the time. I mean, we only have a micro farm and we can't really do very much, but Mm -hmm. I have this tiny little acre that I put my arms around and go, nobody's going to hurt you, you know? And it's so hard though, I think for people who don't own their land and care so much about it, I think Mm -hmm. it's so hard, especially for witches who Mm -hmm. really get that whole science thing as being integral to magic itself. Oh yeah. So yeah, I feel like, Go ahead, Inko. Oh, I was just going to say, I feel like my relationship with the land that I'm on right now is really symbolic with the way that I feel about the South in general. Mm -hmm. My husband's family has some land that was gotten through, I'm sure, theft and murder a long time ago. And we inherited, after the death of his wonderful grandfather, a piece of land that has been treated very poorly. Mm. And it's beautiful. And I live next to an enchanted swamp and have some farmland and some forest and some field. And it's absolutely amazing. And it's been so damaged Mm. by the social history here, by the agriculture here, by the the alienation from the land that 
is endemic in so many rural communities that the land becomes sort of poisoned. Mm-hmm. And so I feel really just an immense amount of gratitude for being able to be in relationship with this land and like pull the garbage out of the land as, mm-hmm. you know, as best as I can and just try to be in relationship with it and yeah, appreciate that opportunity to get closer to it as well and be in, in relationship, but also sort of reverberating into the idea of what is our responsibility mm-hmm. both to the land and to the culture. And yeah. I think it's, helping to excavate the crap that needs to come to daylight and like deal with it like mature people and with a lot of love and empathy and relationship. Yeah, I think that's a big reason why I why I wanted to come back to the South. Not that there's not a lot of pollution in every sense of the term in all of the other parts of the country, but I know this pollution down here, you know, it's I can work with it and try and do what I can do more effectively here. Well, you know, I, I think you've listened to the podcast I did. And yeah. I feel a certain responsibility mm-hmm. um, for my own birthplace, my own, I don't know, the soil on which, you know, I landed. And yeah. sometimes, the way, by the way, you can hear your frogs. And yeah, I was <laughs> loving it. I think it sounds wonderful. <laughs> awesome. And sometimes what we need to do, at least, okay, again, Colin Inku's example, I don't need to say what we need to do. But what I need to do is, yeah, pick up the trash. But a lot of times it's to leave it alone, mm. uh, to not interfere, to protect. We're looking at finding a way to actually make this little acre back here that all of this development's happening around right now. And when we moved mm-hmm. out here, it wasn't. We're looking to make it some kind of a preserve or sanctuary. Oh. Yeah. So that, you know, no one can ever touch it. And as all these things are being torn down around us, all of the rabbits, all of the deer, all of the fox mm. and raccoons, or you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are moving in <laughs> and, and trusting me not to hurt them. And while I'm not a vegetarian, I'm also a big softy. So, mm. you know, they have names now. Um, <laughs> and they have places I tell the kids, don't go over here. That mama deer and her baby sleep underneath that tree. Leave them alone. <laughs> So, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I think the world is so big and the issues are so bad that mm. the best we can do is go this tiny little place here. Yeah. It doesn't mean that's all we should do, but damn it, if that doesn't help a little bit. I think another right. piece of it in my thinking has been listening to indigenous people and actually honoring and valuing their wisdom and being able to uplift their communities and so that this knowledge isn't lost to colonialism and violence because Native people had this profound understanding of the landscape that a lot of the, you know, the white European colonialism had tried to stamp out and it's caused all of these cascading impacts. Like for instance, out here in the West, Indigenous people would set small fires to keep the landscape relatively 
regulated and there are of course species of plants that depend on those fire cycles and so they knew to do this because they were in such right relationship with the land and then of course the forest service had this policy that lasted an entire century where nothing should be ever burned where there was fire suppression. And now we are seeing these catastrophic wildfires that completely have devastated. In 2020, I lived about 15 miles from one of the most severe fires and it turned the sky red and it was terrifying. I was more scared of wildfires than I think I ever was being in a hurricane. Mm. And it was just such a stressful situation. And this is something you're seeing all the way up and down the West that has been made even worse with climate change. And it was because we'd stopped listening to these indigenous voices that were telling us to be in, you know, right relationship with the land. You have to reintroduce these fire cycles. And now modern science is catching up with this. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing this in all sorts of different facets of science. One of the books I actually read for the podcast and I recommend is uh, Finding the Mother Tree by Susan Samard, who is a mycorrhizal ecologist at University of Vancouver. And she writes about how the mycorrhizal network is a way for trees to communicate with each other. And not only do they communicate, they provide parental care for their seedlings. Native people in that area had been saying that the trees had their own nations and they took care of their young and they communicated. They had been saying this for time immemorial. It's just their knowledge wasn't valued. And now we see scientific corroboration of these ideas that Native people were speaking. So I feel part of our work And as people alive at this point is trying to uplift these voices and center indigenous voices that will help bring us in better relationship with the land. And that is something that I definitely want to incorporate into all of my work, especially where I live here, which is on unceded territory of the Kalapuya tribe, which is now part of the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde. And it's also, you know, one of the themes in our podcast, I like to consider myself a native rights ally and I'm friends with a lot of native activists. And one of the sort of intentions of the podcast is to uplift those voices and help to bring greater awareness of how important indigenous wisdom will be in helping us be able to continue to live on this planet. And while you were talking, you were talking about science and this sort of spiritual underworld of the trees. And so that leads me Mm. to my other question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I've been teaching uh, the craft itself for over 10 years, almost uh, 12 now, 11 and a half. And one of the things that I think all of my students kind of get tired of hearing me say is magic is science. And science is magic. And to me, magic is just science that hasn't been proven or measured at this point yet. How much do you think that might be true? Or do you have any input on that? Either one of you. Can I take this one first? Because I have a spiel. <laughs> yeah, do yeah. your spiel. Okay. Yeah. So witches, witches new evolution which is new microbiology. Like this is like ancestral knowledge 
They just didn't have a language for it yet. But one of my clairsentient downloads that I had from the goddess, she has taken me as her scion, and she is the goddess of math and science. And her name is Shashat, and she is in the ancient Kemetic or Egyptian pantheon. She basically was the engineer that helped build the pyramids. She tracked how often there would be solar eclipses. Like this was sacred knowledge. She was a goddess of writing and record keeping. And so for the ancient Egyptians, science and magic were the exact same thing. There wasn't any division. This was something that their science and their magic were one and the same. And the way that they approached the world was through this magical scientific system of effecting change and then observing what happens and then keeping these records so that you can make predictions. And I feel that witches all over time have known about microbes. They knew that smell had a way to convey what sort of microorganisms were found, especially in water. Like you can smell water that's stagnant. You can smell those microorganisms. And so even if at that point we didn't have PCR, we didn't have um, microscopes, there was this innate knowing that there was some sort of invisible force. And at that point it was just magic and herbalism, but which is new which is new that we were always connected. We were part of the natural world and we were connected to all life on the planet. And now we see that with the ability to look at DNA and we find out that all life has a common origin and that, you know, the beginning of life on this planet has come from one eukaryotic cell that was basically the proto-ancestor of all multicellular life on this planet. And the same thing we see with Paleolithic humans is also another big interest of mine. I'm always really fascinated by Paleolithic people and what we can glean from their practices and their artwork on cave walls and everything. And again, we see that all human life basically comes from a uh, mitochondrial eve in Africa two million years ago. So there's so much that I feel that those of us who are spiritual, have this legacy of being the inheritors of this knowledge, of this innate Mm. knowledge that there was this unseen world that connects everything that now science confirms. That's sort of the basis of why I feel that witchcraft and science are the same. And I apply a lot of my scientific approaches to my magic. I mean, I'm pretty analytical at this point with all of my witchcraft stuff. I have, I keep spreadsheets. So many spreadsheets. Oh my goddess. (laughs) (laughs) And I date everything. That is super important for me, whether it be witchcraft, whether it be science, I date everything. (laughs) So important. I do that. Yeah, I do that. And I also um, make sure I put in what the moon phase was. Yes. Yes. And what sign it's in. Yeah, I, I do that too. And so I think that there came this point where science was pitted against witchcraft and it's all about the patriarchy and uh Mm -hmm. there's a really excellent book which is midwives and nurses 
I'll have to get the link to that, but it's, it's a brilliant, very small book, but it talks about how witches and midwives were basically criminalized and persecuted because male doctors wanted to have the domain to be able to take care or take medical care of people. And then, so then you start to see this division of labor and this persecution of witches in order to invalidate all of this knowledge before that point the science and the witchcraft they were the same they were absolutely the same so you know i don't have the numbers in front of me but i'm gonna go ahead and say that the cherokee i know in particular Mm -hmm. had really figured out a lot of the compounds and what could heal you and what couldn't heal you and you know the interactions and all of that and I was stunned to find out how many native voices and how much native research really mm-hmm. went into the PDR. Do you know what the PDR is? Mm-mm. Physician's desk reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was the primary factor in where we are today and understanding, well, pharmaceuticals. Mm. And that has been, I think, lost too. And I think the patriarchy, colonialism, which, you know, we're never done, right? So it's constantly eroding all that knowledge away from us so that we have to- We have to rediscover it. Well, or buy it, you know, or purchase Mm -hmm. it if we have insurance and we can afford it. And there are so many people who can't and it just gets more and more convoluted from there, but- Inku, what do you think? Do you have something to add on that? Oh, a few thoughts. But yeah, adding directly on that, I think our current system of science is, and I mean, so is contemporary witchcraft, don't get me wrong, but science specifically is so interlaced with capitalism and big government structures, you know, like the very Capricorn part of, Mm -hmm. of society, that sense of both control and reductionism, you know, breaking this, you know, don't use the whole dandelion. That was actually what first got me into herbalism, which I am an herbalist. And what first got me into it was reading a report on dandelion from, I believe, the University of Maryland Medical School. And it talked about all of this great stuff that dandelion does. And then specifically said in the report that because it's so common, there's no pressure for research and development on it. So you know, studies aren't being done on it, right? Nobody's getting grants to study just how to pull a dandelion out of your yard and help to heal your, heal some of your bodily functions or support them at least. And so there's just a lot that's lost. Like getting rid of the magic from the system, it just... It's very reductionist. It is. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm, I think I yeah. maybe have repeated myself. But, um, you know, if, even if we think back to the beginning of agriculture, you know, for thousands of years and many generations, agriculture was as much a magic as a science. And now it's big agriculture, not the type of agriculture that we like to support when we have the options or, or work around. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all of the science with none of the magic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just don't think that we're going to be able to think our way out of this clusterfuck that we've gotten ourselves into mm-hmm. of Right. Species collapse and environmental collapse with the same logic that got us into it, which is this big, super left-brained, rational right. yeah. well, way of interacting. To... I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I just got excited. <laughs> <laughs> so here's yeah, a bunch of witches talking about science. We got excited. So 
here's the thing. I just, um, I just was working on a project underneath my government name and because mm. this is a pseudonym mm-hmm. uh, on the idea of marrying back science and folklore. Mm. Ooh. Yes. So years ago, they were sort of in the same camp. They were related. Mm-hmm. I mean, Farmer's Almanac right? Mm-hmm. started in this way. And there's this whole argument going on right now in the scientific community on whether or not we need to talk again to folklorists and to the farmer and find out, you know, what is it? What moon is best that you're doing this in? And talk about the, that lore, because the lore was the magic. Mm-hmm. They knew things that the science didn't actually catch. Yeah. Which is so, I'm sorry, fucking cool, man. Yeah. And I remember I was told so many times, you know, if you get a little packet of seed, I'm sorry to jump in. I just got to do no, it. No, go ahead. No, oh, yeah. And it was a basil packet. I wanted to grow basil 10 years ago. Well, y'all, I tried and y'all, I failed because on the basil packet, it said six to eight inches apart for every seed. So I failed every year. They got <laughs> really tall and then they fell over and then I got pissed off and uh, went out there and I said, damn it. And I just threw it, threw it all over a patch, really thick. Mm-hmm. And I said, now grow or don't, I don't give a damn. (laughs) And I walked away and y'all for real, that was the thickest forest. Oh my gosh. And it went up to my chest. I'm only five foot, but you know, so, you know, and I would talk to my fellow master gardeners and they would tell me that's not the right way. You didn't do it according to the book, according (laughs) to the science. And I said, well, I did it according to the magic y'all. So, (laughs) you know, and I think there's this intersection between science and magic, call it folklore and proven results, whatever you want to call it. And it's in that intersection. Isn't that where everything really is, is in the intersection? Yeah. Those in-between places. That that shit's hot, right? Right. Yeah. That reminds me of um, going back to that book I mentioned before, Finding the Mother Tree. In Canada, they had this policy where they were planting these uh, tree plantations for lumber and they were killing off all of the other species because they were coming from this, you know, white patriarchal paradigm of survival of the fittest. And so if no other trees were surrounding this Doug fir tree, it would grow and get all the nutrients and become the perfect timber crop. And the author, Susan Samard, was going into all these plantations and finding all of these trees planted in this sparse tree plantation with only Doug fir were dying. They were all like just completely wasting all of the money of the province on planting these trees that would just die. And Samard's work basically over the course of like three decades found that the trees need each other. They need other plants. They don't need to be in this uniform, perfect rows. They actually share resources between species. 
there's not this stark survival of the fittest paradigm that you can just put over nature because nature is a lot more cooperative and interconnected than at that point, white patriarchal capitalist thinking could even understand. And the same thing, I feel like when it comes to our gardens, I don't follow all of the recommendations of how to plant my crops. And I still have really great success. And I water my plants and speak to them and I feed them with my own blood and I use compost and I like to just plant all kinds of herbs that I'll get from the woods somewhere and I'll root it. And I'm pretty good with plants. My background is in mycology and botany. So I always the witch that is telling everyone what the different species of plants are whenever we go on witch walks. And I just grow things as, as I feel as like the plant tells me where to grow. And I've had more success than ever listening to like these strict guidelines from planting catalogs. And I feel that when you can be in relation with the plants and not just see them as this commodity, they give so much more to you. And by the way, you're going to hear Kaya's Helen in the background and there is <laughs> nothing I can do about that. That's amazing. Oh my gosh, that's great. frogs and your coyotes. It's like this magical soundscape. I love it. There there you have it. I'm going to talk over them because I have two things. Angel, number one, you are so on it. Nature abhors monoculture. Mm -hmm. It hates Mm -hmm. it. It wants diversity. It desperately needs diversity. And anytime I underplant with my herbs all around my other things, everything does so much better. And that's the first mm-hmm. point. Monoculture. Where does that happen in a forest? It doesn't. So Mm-mm. oh nope. Does not happen in any of the natural world, I don't think. Unless we create it, which is well, right. And then the other thing is not until I introduced mushroom mycelium to my farm did I ever see such happy trees. Oh yeah. Mushrooms will save the world. <laughs> oh, they're gonna, they're gonna. I have them growing underneath my salad. I have them growing in the woods. I have them mm. everywhere. And the trees are so much more vibrant. They're oh, yeah. so much more healthy. So just on those two points. But Inku, did we get to you on that? Um, I guess I was also going to think about an alternative path because yeah, there's definitely like the capitalist reduction of magic into science in a way that's problematic and white supremacist and patriarchal. I mean, even the history of stamping out the midwives and Mm -hmm. the herbalists and the other schools of thought, like that was carried out by the precursor to the American Medical Association with big government money and, and money from big capitalist foundations to create a monoculture in our understanding of our own bodies. Yeah. our understanding of health and how that's related to our environment and one another and not mediated through, you know, rich white men. And so, yeah, that that's like the, the terrible model, right? Yes. Is that type of theft and and destruction. But then then I think that we can also have a more optimistic or I think sometimes more positive things happen and we can actually have paradigm shifts that really break open science to new ways of doing things and break open people to 
more magical ways of thinking. Yeah, I think that's and I think like that's part of our, our work. Yeah, that's part of our work with the podcast and also in our own careers and lives is, right. is bringing that back. I mean, here in uh, where I live, we are one and be one of the first states to have legalized psilocybin therapy. And I've been involved in this campaign since I, I moved out here and I'm actually going to be part of the board to help get things certified so that in 2023, there's going to be a legalized psilocybin or therapeutic psilocybin industry in the state of Oregon. And I feel that that's going to be a paradigm shift because mm -hmm. psilocybin has such an incredible ability to give healing to people. And if we can have it in a setting where it fosters a therapeutic, basically having a therapeutic setting, so not just at a party or, right, you know, where a lot of those of us who, you know, aren't indigenous and did not have this in our ancestral lineage, most of us were introduced to psilocybin through the party scene and such. And it has so much potential and power that when you treat it as just a party drug, it completely separates it from what its true potential and magic and healing aspects that it can provide. And I'm so excited that I get to be a part of that here. You know, the mushrooms want us to survive. They want the planet to survive. That is one of the reasons I feel. And this is also something that Terrence McKenna talks about is that the psilocybin is a way for the mushrooms and the biosphere to speak to us and basically give us the ability to feel more connected. And once we can start being able to access that medicine safely, and as well as incorporating and respecting where it comes from, from the indigenous teachers and the people like Maria Sabina, who first gave it to the West, which was then capitalized. But anyway, I digress. But that I feel is like one of the first steps towards this more integration into wholeness, we're utilizing knowledge about how psilocybin interacts with the brain and also its therapeutic purposes, but also acknowledging that it has a very powerful spiritual component and that mm -hmm. it can help bring collective healing to everyone, you know, anyone that can access it, which hopefully they have mechanisms to prevent it from being something that only rich people can have access to. And then from there, just being able to open the doorway to saying, let's try to live more in alignment with nature, especially microbes. And the whole science of our microbiome is also something that I'm endlessly fascinated with and how we're starting to understand more and more about as organisms, we make up a multitude of various different types of species of yeast. I think there's even archaea in our gut, not to mention the amount of bacterial DNA, which is a magnitude greater than our actual human DNA in our bodies. And being able to really embrace that and in a way that is more than just this disconnection from that we are all a part of this. And then hopefully that will lead more towards a greater incorporation of the spiritual element to the pursuit of helping save the planet. I mean, I think mushrooms are just the Answer. seminal <laughs> symbol to the liminal space. 
too, like bringing it back to the concept of the liminal and magic and science, both working in the liminal and working in the edges and trying to bring out otherwise unknown wisdom or, or knowledge or ways of doing things or ways of even asking questions. I think back in high school, if someone would have told me that Anthony Rapp from Rent was playing some mushroom scientist, famous <laughs> person, but in the future, because warp fungi connects all of the dimensions or whatever, I'd have been like, oh, you had some mushrooms. Okay, I understand. <laughs> um, but it's like our reality that yes. we're in now. Like, it's actually like what's on my TV sometimes. So, so we're I'm here. Like- we're already in a liminal space, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, how fucking crazy... How much crazier could the world get? Just accept all of it because it's all happening. Well, I honestly want to say that I think the world is crazy when it is illegal to grow a beautiful plant that can help with so many anxiety issues, so many cancer issues. And yeah, I'm talking about marijuana, Mm y'all. You know, Alabama finally allowed hemp to be grown here. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. the work and the hoops you have to jump through to do it. I mean, it's insane. Well, Mississippi had legalized cannabis and then the state Supreme Court stepped in and said, nah, nah, we can't. We wouldn't be able to criminalize enough black people if we legalized it. So we're just gonna, you know, like- We don't want this beautiful, naturally growing plant to be out there. You know, we we, we need to throw people in jail. So (laughs) it's a moneymaker throwing people in jail. So- It definitely is. I mean, there are municipalities who will contract with private jail companies to build the jail, but they promise to keep it at 90% occupancy all the time or they get fined. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The deep South and some of our deep issues that still have a lot to do with racism, by the way. Mm -hmm. But I think it's still hopeful that Mississippi passed a resolution for legalization. The voters of Mississippi, who are often reflexive of certain maybe really terrible things, did something really good. And then the state just overturned it. But And and just like in Georgia, just like in Georgia, Mississippi would be a blue state if it weren't for gerrymandering. But that's That's, a whole nother conversation. Just like Georgia, just like Georgia. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all got proud of Georgia down here, honey. We all (laughs) got proud of Georgia. (laughs) Right now, Georgia is our hero. Thank you very much. I might have had a sigil or two tucked away. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody did anything to affect that. (laughs) Let me ask you this. You are awesome together. Your energy just sort of goes together as if you're brother and sister. I don't know. So tell me more a little bit about that. Let's pull away from our conversation and make sure everyone knows. How do you know each other? Why are you podcasting together? (laughs) Oh my goodness. So we've known each other since sixth grade. You want to tell the story? Oh goodness. Okay. Correct me if I get something wrong. So, oh my God, how fucking fitting is this story? One of us asked the other one to the Halloween dance. We were kind of in the same little friend group that stood around and like awkwardly looked at each other. And I think you asked me. I did. And I went as a vampire and you went as a black kitty cat, which Mm -hmm. I've seen you dress (laughs) with kitty ears so much since it just seems prophetic. 
And there was another person who thought I was going with them, but I was not. And that person got really mad when I danced with you and she grabbed you and threatened you physical harm. Yeah. And then we became best friends for the rest <laughs> of our lives. <laughs> yes. So that, that, that was our origin story. We've been friends ever since. Inku first came out to me. Was that like ninth grade? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I remember. Because uh, you were dating our friend Candace. So that was like your last ditch hope to try. To <laughs> well, not that's not that's not really accurate. I don't think. I think you had it more. Maybe Candace did too, but I don't even think she did. I think maybe you had it in your head more that Candace and I were dating. Oh, and yes. There was one night that we were, I remember, I think we were riding around in the back of a pickup truck yes. in the town from which we hail. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like really upset and I was trying to come out to you. And I was like, you know, crying and just being really emotional. And you thought that I was crying because I didn't think Candace liked me. <laughs> and you were like, no, it's okay. You just have to ask her again. And I was like, what are you talking about? And that's really not what I'm saying. And it took a few tries before I was able to, to get it all out there. And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then you were like, oh, okay. And then you went home and told your parents in a fight. You told your mom because your mom was saying something about me spending the night or something. And you screamed from the living room, he's gay, mom. And then the next day when your father picked me up after theater practice, he slapped my knee real hard in the truck, just the two of us and said, what is it you say now? We're here and we're queer and we're doing something, huh? Oh my and, God. Oh my um, God. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah, that was my... I didn't know we were going to talk about my coming out story here, but yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry, we can we can take this out, Inker. No, 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 please, please leave it in. No, okay, just, okay. It took a funny, it took a funny turn. I didn't, I didn't jot any notes on that particular I love part of it. life. I love uh, it. And so once Inker came out as gay, I became extremely protective of him in our small little town because it was very dangerous to be gay in uh, where we are from. And yeah, it. <laughs> It was rough. We, we mm -hmm. definitely had some experiences that I wasn't out as non-binary or queer at that point. I But I was a witch. I was a witch. At, oh, yeah. Our, you were a witch small... way before I was. Yes. Well, I saw the craft and it was like, <laughs> oh, that's what I do. That is who I am. And so <laughs> that's, that's like the typical millennial story of how how did you come to witchcraft is i saw the craft awesome. and then i started my own coven with my friends in the woods and i started trying to find every book i could on witchcraft and you and i did a couple of things we we did a pendulum reading mm -hmm. on my dock and we did we i think we played with a spirit board a couple of times Inku was always like sort of my uh companion into my early forays into the occult but he still like at that point was also very studious about Christianity. And to this day, you were <laughs> probably one of the most accomplished Bible scholars. I think I know. <laughs> I do really, really like the Bible. And I really <laughs> like Jesus a lot. Jesus uh, has a very special place still in my pantheon. He's a badass. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I definitely, I left Christianity 
for a little bit. And then I read John Dominic Crossan's Jesus, a revolutionary biography. Mm. And I was like, oh, oh, I get it. Like all of the things that I liked about Christianity were still there. And the things that I found abhorrent about my experiences with Christianity were replaced by like badass social revolutionary. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm in. Uh, and so I invited Jesus back into my heart, but he's very different now than he was before. He's much more present. And well, he also yeah. shares space with others as well. So like Buddha and he does share space. But to me, I just I have different relationships to Christ than I do with Buddha. And I have different relationship with Buddha than I do with like the gods and goddesses to me, like they're they're all out there they're all my friends but we like do different things together and have different energies together and just like when you're like with one group of friends you act sort of a certain way and when you're with another group of friends you're behave or with your family right switching your code you code switch yeah (laughs) yeah i think i the good unitarian that i am um i i code switch the different traditions that i work with and mingle them together sometimes. And sometimes that is uncomfortable. So then uh, we ended up going to the same alma mater together. And Mm -hmm. we both of us spent quite a bit of time abroad separately because you were in Wales Mm -hmm. for some time. And then uh, the Yucatan and I was in Yucatan and you were in British Columbia. Yep. In Victoria. And, um, but we always came back together and we were always like, as soon as we would, like we would spend like a year apart. And then as soon as we got back together, it was like, Oh, you know, like I saw him yesterday. It was just, yeah, that's been a constant thing in our relationship. And then, so I started the podcast. Well, actually let me back up. So Inku and I have always been best friends. We, we call and we talk to each other. And then when the pandemic first hit, I started this podcast with someone that I I met on another podcast community and shout out to Iris. They were my first co-host and they did so much back end work on this. Like I would not have started this podcast without them. And they set up the website. They got the, the domain. They even made me a tutorial on how to update all of my posts. And I still use that today. And Iris just, they got really busy with their lives. I mean, I think they're friends with Gisela, which is another shout out. Um, Hmm. Both of them are involved with Portland State. I'm not sure. I think Iris is actually um, a professor or teacher there now, but I want to get them back on the show so they can talk about their work with gender and some of the other themes with witchcraft. But they basically set up the whole podcast for me and then they got too busy. And so they were like, well, here you can have the podcast. And so then I did the podcast by myself for a little while. And then I was just like, I want to bring Inku into this. And now Inku and I have this wonderful thing that we get to do together. And it really helped us stay connected. And we both get to have like all of these outlets for our various ADHD activities and hobbies like um (laughs) with me i have a lot of latent academic energy that i don't get to use anymore because i'm i work a corporate job now 
and Inku gets to have a way, an outlet to talk about witchcraft. And Inku also talks a lot for his career as well. And so it, it's a way to kind of, for both of us to stay connected and create and collaborate together and do art. Both of us have been doing art for the stickers for the podcast. And yeah. I would still push this one question and that would be why, why podcast altogether, why even do it? Well, you can answer first, Inku. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I have an answer to that one, because I think if you had just come to me and been like, hey, we're going to do a podcast, I would have asked that question, right? (laughs) But you already had the podcast and I already listened to the podcast and I already liked the podcast. And okay, that's fair. When you asked me to do it, I was like, sure, I'll give it a try. That sounds like it could be fun. And so, no, it's been, it's been a blast. And we're talking about new topics, but we're in the same ballpark of stuff that we talk about anyway. Like I think we were doing daily tarot card pulls and readings for each other way before the podcast and um, things that now have ended up on the podcast would come up sometimes with some of your witch organizing or my ritual work. So yeah, yeah, it's just, it's been a really fun opportunity to see what we've, like the directions that you and I have gone in. Uh, and in like surprisingly similar directions, despite being really far away from each other most of the time and keep connected over those. I've mentioned to you before, and I think you said you didn't remember it, that really early Sinestri astrology reading. Yes, I think I, I do remember now. <laughs> well, I might've planted that memory when I told you the story, but I, but I, I remember I, I thought about it and, and it came back to me. Awesome. Yes. About the... Let's see. What was it? It was, it used a metaphor of like two willow trees blowing over a lake at each other and like staying in touch from a distance. And I was like, oh, that's really nice. And at the time you and I were going to, you know, we were going to go live in New York city and and be in the theater. And that was our plan. But instead we're, we're, we're really like two willow trees hanging out, like waving at each other through this these magical filaments that are the internet that we couldn't have even begun to imagine really early on in that journey. I honestly think it's just like really honest theater. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, And, and I dig it. So I sent you separate questions. Do you remember them and who would like to have their separate question first? Okay. You're... I, I know which ones you're talking about. Let mm-hmm. me just find it. Oh, da, 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 here we go. I remember that if you if you need help, if you don't want to look it up. Okay. For Angel, I, believe- I have oh, Southern have roots. And even though I've moved far away, has my life and my life has changed significantly. What mm-hmm. about my craft? Would I say that still has Southern roots within it? New Orleans will always be part of who I am. I feel so grateful to have been raised and grown up in that city. And Inku lived there and I would go visit him. And we had so many amazing Mardi Gras, so many amazing Mardi Gras. Mm. That is such a magic that for folks that are looking to go somewhere in the United States that still has a lot of just ambient magic everywhere, New Orleans is a must see. It's like next to Salem, Massachusetts, as far as like places you must go if you st- <laughs> if you want to go to a witchy location in North America. And that will always be a part of who I am, no matter where I go. 
And Portland has this weird fetishization of New Orleans and New Orleans culture. But February and early March here are just the worst. It's rainy and cold and there's just not way, really a way to have a Mardi Gras out here. And I've eaten food that says it's from New Orleans and I have notes. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> it, it is like, there's also there's this chain up here called Voodoo Donuts, which is super problematic oh. in a lot of ways. And they're basically just trying to like fetishize this whole concept of New Orleans voodoo. And I find that a lot of people up here want to say that they have some kind of connection to it. And maybe they do. Maybe I'm, I'm not speaking for everyone, but I grew up there, you know, that I miss. This is the time of year I'm the most homesick, for one, mm. because Mardi Gras was always around my birthday. My birthday is the end of February. And so I love Mardi Gras. I love the costumes. I love the pageantry. I love the magic behind it. I love the drunken, ecstatic revelry. Mm-hmm. And you just don't get it anywhere else except like New Orleans. And I miss that. And it's always going to be a part of my magic. And you know, my spouse, he was raised in a, a Cajun Catholic family. He practices more of a folk magic tradition. I kind of do more, I guess you would call it traditional witchcraft. He does more of a folk magic practice. Like he prays to the saints. He has um, an ancestor altar and, but yeah, so my husband's practice is very much still integrated into that tradition with his family and this is what he was taught he has all of these superstitions like don't sweep my feet and which doesn't make sense because we're already married but anyway just all of these sort of folk magic superstitions that I don't think he ever realized weren't something that everyone else practices until we moved away from where we're from and then he was like oh okay this is really unique to where I'm from and our culture and so yeah that'll always be part of my magic no matter where I go And I guess the other part would be the way that people in the South linger and take things a little slower is not something that you find out here on the West Coast. The rhythm here is a lot quicker than back home. And so when I can remember and I'm not like having to deal with capitalism, having that my Southern roots to remind me to just kind of slow things down and take a little more mindfulness and appreciation for it. That's something that I feel that will carry with me. And then when I can remember to do it really strengthens my practice. You know, I'm sure that this matters to no one except for my old ass. But the second you said linger, I had that 90s song stuck in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I think it maybe applies. So, (laughs) all right. Inku? Yeah. So my question was related, but it was about how I've left the South and come back to the South. And it's something that I've thought a lot about because it's something that a lot of people, especially outside of the South, look at me a little, a little side eye for whenever I talk about like, no, like my trajectory has always been to come back to the South if possible. And I've ended up back in the, in the rural South. And, you know, everything that Angel was saying about New Orleans, I think is in some way can be generalized to 
other aspects of the South. I like to say that I feel like the the sky hangs a little lower here mm. and that this humidity sort of has a magic to it. You know, all it of the- slows people the fuck down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of my first experiences in New England, uh, and I lived in sort of the upper South. And so I'd had that experience of comparison between there and Mississippi. And then in New England, one of the first things that I did was went to uh, a little like art house movie theater and watched Beasts of the Southern Wild. Have, have either of y'all seen Beasts of the Southern Wild? Uh-uh. Not yet. It's an art film that sort of depicts a scenario similar to Katrina or like a disaster definitely set in and around New Orleans. And the film itself, I think, is really problematic and exoticizing. And then, like, hearing the comments and, like, the reactions of the people around me just made every muscle in my body tense up. And, like, Mm -hmm. I wanted to leave. Just the way that they were reacting to the images on the screen of the Deep South. It was really an early sort of sign of a lot of my experience in the Northeast, which was amazing in many ways, but also alienating Mm. and stiltifying. And, you know, I feel like I might have mentioned this earlier, but I kind of understand the issues down here and Mm -hmm. think I have something to contribute meaningfully with that. And I don't know what my contribution could be in some of the other places that I've lived. I definitely got a lot of sort of shock that I was from Mississippi and people being like, oh, I thank God you escaped. Or <laughs> one person who I said, we were introducing ourselves and I said, I'm from Mississippi. And he said, I hate the South. And he turned around and walked away or- um, Rude. Oh, that unfolded in its own in its own time and in its own way. Or another person that I was like, oh, I came from Kentucky. And they gave me a look and I said, oh, it's a really nice place. And they said very loudly, yeah, except for all the racists. And then like stormed off. Can I just just cut in for a moment and just say the South does not have the trademark on racism. As someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest, let me tell you, in Oregon, this state puts on the veneer of being very liberal and, you know, progressive and woke. But you go outside of the Willamette Valley and it gets real Trumpy, real racist. Like there are no people of color. At least in the South, the racism is sort of, it's like, it's out front. It's cultural, but it, it's out front. And, it, but you still have black neighbors. You still know black people. You're like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you still have a relationship with people of color. You go out to some parts of Eastern Oregon, there are no people of color. It is dangerous to be a person of color. And, you know, some of the most virulent and active chapters of like white nationalist groups and neo-Nazis are in Idaho and then Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington. And so whenever people like want to razz on the South about being racist, I'm just like, no, y'all, <laughs> y'all got your own racism. And I promise you, it's a, probably a lot more violent and virulent and harmful than anything like a Southerner could have. So anyway. So first of all, Angel just said y'all. <laughs> well, y'all is something that I will never stop saying because it's the only way to have a plural form of you. But we were on that early, weren't we? It, it mm-hmm. was- 
Oh, we were on that early. Yeah. It, it's not but, gendered anyway. <laughs> Back to you, Anku. All y'all. <laughs> Go ahead. Y'all means, y'all means all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a big part of it that the South uh, we, I mean, we have a lot of longstanding and ongoing issues and struggles and caricaturing those in a way to like deride the South is also deriding all of the people working for social justice here right. and all of the communities of color who have lived in resistance, um, who you just, one just makes invisible by focusing only on local white supremacists, mm-hmm. which yeah, they definitely have in every region. I think ours are just a little bit closer to the governor's mansions. Yeah. And to who we send into the Senate. And so that definitely, uh, except for Georgia, again, God's bless Georgia. Um, But yeah, so the the culture that I found out there, besides just being really anti-Southern, I felt like it had its own sort of fundamentalist dogmatism to it that was like secular and often dressed up as social justice, but just like a very thin veneer of social justice slapped onto something that was maybe not so great. I often, I think, made some people uncomfortable in the Northeast when I would say that a lot of people I knew in the Northeast who were stalwart sort of liberals and progressives and social justice people, their attitude was somewhat similar to the conservative fundamentalists that I had left in the deep South. Because it was just like, nope, I have one worldview. Everything has to fit inside of it. I'm unwilling to see anything that that deviates from it. And it's just exhausting. And part of that, honestly, even though like it is easier to be witchy up there, in a lot of circles, it's also like hyper-secular in a way that I would have felt maybe uncomfortable being open, not only as like a witchy person, but as like any sort of person of faith in some of the circles I was in up there. So I was just, yeah, I've referred to my time in the Northeast before as like eggplant. I really, I like eggplant. There's a lot I like about eggplant, but I have a slow allergy to it and it just starts closing off my esophagus. So I can't breathe if I eat too much of it. And being in the Northeast was kind of like that. Like I enjoyed it, but it like had a cumulative effect that when I would come back home, part of my brain and body could just relax in a way that was difficult for me. And, you know, I think a lot of witches out there do sort of, I don't think they ignore, but I think they overlook the magic, the inherent magic of the South because of all that, because of the politics, because of the historical racism, because of all this kind of stuff, but it's here. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like Angel said, we, we slow the fuck down down here. And if you slow the fuck down, you can feel the magic in the air and in the trees and in the soil. And it's here. It really is here. And to completely deride that because of the history, which mm-hmm. I do not ignore. But this was part of an African experience as well. This was part Mm -hmm. of a Caribbean experience. And so we have a more complicated magical history than I think anyone's ever given time for. Mm. Also, with the South, there's just so much authentic American roots, especially in Mississippi, in the Delta, which is an extremely impoverished part of the state. I, I mean, 
I spent some time, actually, I did my master's degree in a town in northern Mississippi that was kind of not very far from the Delta, but it was the university that had been around for eight generations and a lot of the the white Southern money would send their children there. So there was this sort of like in, entrenched generational white Southern money that mm-hmm. went to this university. And then just like an hour down the road, you had Clarksdale, which was very poor, very, you know, majority black. But that's where the blues are from. That's where the crossroads where uh, Robert Johnson gave his did his deal with the devil to sell his soul so he could play the blues. That is all there. And it's such a magical place. And it has this authenticity that you're not going to find anywhere else in the world, let alone the rest of the country. And then there's just so much that the struggles of the people in the South and the magic of the South has inspired the rest of the world, especially with hoodoo. Hoodoo has become integrated, especially in the modern witchcraft. All the candle magic, that's something that comes from somewhat of the Romani line, but also of hoodoo, because there was a lot of candle magic in hoodoo. And that is from the South. That is from like these mixing of these different cultures and the, the struggles and the people that were able to reinvent their their magic from the ancestral homeland and practice it in a way that was able to allow them to continue to survive. That is all from the South. And there's such as this deep legacy and authenticity to American culture and what people perceive as American that comes from the South that nowhere else in the country can lay claim to. And I feel that that's what makes it really special that even though there's there is all these problems and I'll be the first to, you know, <laughs> rage and rail about the fact that Mississippi is probably going to cost us our right to bodily autonomy in the Supreme Court. And I'm still really angry about that. But at the same time, I'm proud in a lot of ways to have grown up there and grown up around New Orleans and have that as part of my culture, because it has such a authenticity that you're not going to find anywhere else. And you know, when I'm trying to defend this angel, I always lean in and say, and that's not the fault of the trees, you know, Mm -hmm. our trees, our land, our beautiful beaches, rivers, and mountains. It's not the fault of the land and indigenous people lived here Mm -hmm. and they whisper along these ponds and whoever is still here doing magic in the deep South, we're doing Y'all, we're doing the work of bears. Mm. It's hard, you know, but we're being called to do it by the land. And if we abandon that, well, what hope is there left? And, you know, I think really tied for me in all of this is that there is a heaviness to the amount of just direct violence that's endemic to our land. Like it carries that as well. And like, Hoodoo and other traditions come out of, largely out of resistance against that. And so I think, yeah, I think that there is a heaviness here that might be difficult for a lot of other people in other parts of the country or the world to really understand if they're not connected to the heaviness of their own place, right? So like if people in the Northeast um, that I experienced who are totally blind to the genocide that created their towns and they're only looking at the South, that's a problem. 
No, that was beautiful. I mean, oh, oh, I mean thank you. the legacy, you're right. It's a hell of a thing to carry. Keep going. It, well, I guess what comes to mind for me is what we were saying earlier about responsibility. I do ancestor work and both uh, magically and I have a really big family tree on online. And one of the things that I've started doing is going through and adding in family members. Uh, the only way that I can think to do it in the software is to add them as, as spouses to the people who had paperwork owning them and putting in as much information as I can. And I can't find a lot, but putting in whatever I can in there as a reminder to anyone who looks at that, that tree that this ancestor of mine kidnapped and enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And that like, this is our burden to bear and only radical solutions are even worth considering for yeah. reparations and trying to, trying to heal, trying to heal oppressor and oppressed and the entire society that we've tried to limp along and just not reconcile with. Your earlier, very poetic description of it being like the humidity here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that matters because it's not just the weight of that humidity. Hey guys, if you live down here, you're going to walk outside. Your whole face is going to be wet in about five minutes. So there's no way away from the immersion mm -hmm. of all of that. You know, the weight of all of that, of our history, of our historicity, of the magic that was here, of our very complicated lineage. You know, there's no way away from it. So in a lot of ways, that is indicative of Southern magic, that we carry all that, that we're part of all that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, it's an amalgam. In and, a it's, lot of I think, and I think it's expressed in so many different ways, like the magic of the South, like Angel's, Angel's partner's magic and the root that he learned his magic from. It was Christian, but it was magic. Um, and a lot of the magic down here isn't necessarily looking at like, you know, tutorials on YouTube or TikTok or whatever, as much as just like, oh, I thought everybody did that. And it's totally magical, uh, you know, but it's yeah. not something they would call magic. A lot of it's from our grandmamas. Mm -hmm. you know? um, a lot of it is even from our grandfathers. It's uh, from the local farmer. It's, you know, it's embedded in the daily. Mm -hmm. with I think we still want to get back to sometime. I would really like to see folklore and science. Yes. Conversation. I think that's a hot topic. Let's not forget that. I really like that. <laughs> Maybe that's a thing we should talk about sometime. Oh yeah. That would be awesome. I can, um, I can share some resources. There's a really good book called under the witching tree. And it's basically a collection of research on all of these various different trees that were known in folklore and also tying it to the scientific aspects. Like um, for instance, elder elder was considered mm. the fairy tree, right? And you never mm -hmm. or the goddesses tree. You never burn elder. Well, that's also why, because elder is uh, related to poison ivy. And if you burn it, the smoke is actually um, can, really, yeah, it's toxic. It can fuck you up. And so all those compounds that are, you know, can cause you all sorts of dermatological issues that just go up into the smoke. And so the folklore of elder is deeply tied into how it is utilized and, you know, the taught people not to burn it. And so 
that book actually talks a little bit more about that. I can um, send you that as far as like links go. And uh, I don't know if you've heard this podcast. It's one of my favorites next to yours. Um, it's oh, called wow. Missing Witches Podcast. Mm, yeah, is, they're great. Oh, they're brilliant. What? I've Missing- never heard. Oh, they're these two witches out of, um, I think, some in Quebec, Canada. And their podcast is basically going and looking for the witches we've been missing. Yeah, they're fantastic. They have a book out, too. And they're, mm-hmm. they're feminist and they sing. And anytime Missing Witches puts out a podcast, I'm like really excited about it. Risa, one of the co-hosts, did an episode on Hildegard of Bingham and how they did a meta-analysis of all of her folk cures and something like 60% of it was actually validated. Wow. And so there's more and more of this like attention to looking at this knowledge that has been preserved from a nun in the 11th century who brewed beer and made various different types of cookies that made you happy and looking at it and being able to have this approach to seeing the knowledge, the innate knowledge and wisdom and potential medical benefits of the folklore. Okay. That's just fucking hot. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. I'll, I'll send you the link to their, their podcast. They're definitely one to have on your rotation. And anyone listening, we're going to try to get links for everything that was mentioned in this particular podcast because we went off road and we had fun. <laughs> and we had a great time. So we good. have so many links that we were going to put up for you. All right, guys, Ooh. I'm going to have to close it down, but I wanted to thank you for being on the Southern Fried Witch podcast. Could, awesome. I, could I add two very quick things? Not to well, take too I'm much big, more time. I'm a big fan of you. Go. Ah, well, one thing that I was uh, that I got excited about um, in thinking about the themes we've been talking about, and specifically folklore, is wondering if you've seen anything about Mississippian folklore. Not Mississippian, like Angel and I are, but the Mississippian cultural oh, culture, belts that yeah. went from from like Wisconsin all the way down through Florida. Mm. Um, Anyway, I want to know a lot more about their folklore because their art and architecture is amazing and they're the people from the land where I was born. And I would, anything you wrote about indigenous folklore of the Southeast, I would eat up. But I don't know if we've gone back as far as too much to like the Mississippian culture, but these big urban, indigenous urban centers that really fly in the face of a lot of racist tropes that we've been handed about indigenous peoples. Anyway, I'm salivating at the idea of thinking about that. Um, Actually, I was thinking about doing a a journal. I can't believe I'm saying this on the air, but um, I wanted to do a journal that actually married the craft and science. And yes. And so all the entries and submissions would be based in science, but have some kind of folklore or magical component. So Hey, Inku, I think you may have your first assignment. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. Um, I do. I saw a cartoon the other day, and this is the last thing I just like jotted in my notes about magic and science that totally cool, totally cool. is on my mind. I saw this cartoon the other day. I think it was making its rounds on social media. I don't know if anyone else saw it, but it showed like a stereotypical like scientist nerd talking about astrology. And someone else is like, oh, I thought that was debunked. And the scientist is like, oh, well, that was until AI started looking at astrology and recognized that it's an incredibly powerful predictive model. 
And one of the things that I like to think about at the liminal space of both magic and science is like, what kinds of paradigms is our science going to like open up? Um, just with the amount of rapid change that we've had in the last 20 years and what seems possibly coming down the pipeline with artificial intelligence and augmented reality and neurobiology and 3D printing and stem cell and biotech, I think our society itself might look unrecognizable in a very near future, like much faster change than we saw um, even in the, the earlier part of the digital revolution. And I think magic is going to be a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, I think the reopening up of magic, uh, I think the psilocybin industry is is part of this as well. I mean, we wouldn't have a lot of what we think of as our magic traditions if it wasn't for the work done in the psychedelic community. Yeah. Last time psilocybin was getting, we were getting to know each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. Terrence and, McKenna calls us the archaic revival. Yes. Nice. Um, anyway, that's my prediction that that your your theory that science or that magic is science that we haven't figured out yet, I think is just about to be part of a really big story with us as a society, or we're all gonna, you know, not be here all at one time. So one of the two, one of the two. Let's what just keep our is. vibrations high. <laughs> <laughs> Angel, what about you? Any last words? This has been great. This is the first time we've been interviewed together. And I really enjoyed getting a chance to kind of talk about our origin story because we never did that on our podcast. We no, just that's like, true. That was we were that just like, really hey, we, we we do the podcast together. <laughs> I think our first episode was about roses and mm. um and then big trees. And then we just we never really talked about our background or where we're from or how long we've known each other. So it was really awesome that you gave us the space and time to be able to talk about that. And uh, with your permission, of course, I, I'd like to also syndicate this on our feed too, because I feel like this is a great way to let all the listeners know. And that was the other thing I was going to say about podcasting that I really love. And I'll just finish up with this thought is that it creates this network, this, this expansive network that has connected me to a lot of really awesome writers and thinkers and occultists that I wouldn't otherwise be able to have much of an interaction with. And that, that was one of the reasons I wanted to get into podcasting is because I started listening to podcasts, including yours and That Witch Life. And then I was like, I love this. I, I, I will listen to all of them. And then I got the opportunity to kind of start my own. And now it's like connected me to all these other podcasters who are also authors. And so that's one of the things I really enjoy about it is I also get to talk to a lot of really awesome people that come on the podcast for all sorts of different topics. And so, yeah, that's really great. And so I really just want to say thank you for having us both on and interviewing us. This was really fun. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, I struggle with the idea of technology because it's sort of antithetical to a lot of what I do, but without technology, I couldn't speak to anyone. So, mm -hmm. you know, here we are, we're finding a good. So finding a good is kind of what I try to do all the time. So Aww. we found it. We found a good. <laughs> together and i love y'all and thank you so much for being on the podcast and 
guys, I'll be back next week. We are interviewing someone else and we're going to release that name at a later date. Love y'all like chicken. Y'all have been listening to the Southern Fried Witch Podcast. Come back around next week for a little bit more magic from the deep south.